Good evening, my darlings, and welcome to Marley's Ghosts. It's time for another Dread Time story. Now get yourselves all tucked in. Ready? Good. Let's begin. Tonight's story is The Listener by Algernon Blackwood. September 4th. I have hunted all over London for rooms suited to my income, 120 pounds a year, and have at last found them. Two rooms, without modern conveniences, it is true, and in an old ramshackle building, but within a stone's throw of the place and an eminently respectable street. The rent is only 25 pounds a year. I had begun to despair when at last I found them by chance. The chance was a mere chance and unworthy of record. I had to sign a lease for a year, and I did so willingly. The furniture from our old place in Hertfordshire, which has been stored so long, will just suit them. October 1st. Here I am in my two rooms, in the center of London, and not far from the offices of the periodicals where occasionally I dispose of an article or two. The building is at the end of a cul-de-sac. The alley is well paved and cleaned, and lined chiefly with the backs of sedate and institutional-looking buildings. There is a stable in it. My own house is dignified with the title of Chambers. I feel as if one day the honor must prove too much for it, and it will swell with pride and fall asunder. It is very old. The floor of my sitting-room has valleys and low hills on it, and the top of the door slants away from the ceiling with a glorious disregard of what is usual. They must have quarreled fifty years ago, and have been going apart ever since. October 2nd. My landlady is an old and thin and faded and dusty of face. She is uncommunicative. The few words she utters seems to cost her pain. Probably her lungs are half-cooked with dust. She keeps my room as free from this commodity as possible, and the assistance of a strong girl who brings up the breakfast and lights the fire. As I have said already, she is not communicative. In reply to pleasant efforts on my part, she informed me briefly that I was the only occupant of the house at present. My rooms had not been occupied for some years. There had been other gentlemen upstairs, but they had left. She never looks straight at me when she speaks. She fixes her dim eyes on the middle waistcoat button till I get nervous and begin to think it isn't straight or that the wrong sort of button altogether. October 8. My week's book is nicely kept and so far reasonable. Milk and sugar, bread, butter, marmalade, eggs, the laundress, some oil, attendance. The landlady has a son who, she told me, is something of an omnibus. He comes occasionally to see her. I think he drinks, for he talks very loud, regardless of the hour, day or night, and tumbles about over the furniture. All the morning I sit indoors writing articles. Verses for the comic papers, a novel I've been at for three years, and concerning which I have dreams, a children's book in which the imagination is run free and another book which is to last as long as myself, since it is an honest record of my soul's advance or retreat in the struggle of life. Besides these, I keep a book of poems which I use as a safety valve, and concerning which I have no dreams whatsoever. Between the lot I am always occupied. 
In the afternoons, I generally try to take a walk for my health's sake through Regent Park in Kensington Gardens or further field to Hampstead Heath. October 10th. Everything went wrong today. I have two eggs for breakfast. This morning, one of them was bad. I rang the bell for Emily. When she came in, I was reading the paper, and without looking up, I said, Eggs bad. Oh, is it, sir? She said. I'll get another one, and went out taking the egg with her. I waited my breakfast for her return, which was in five minutes. She put the new egg on the table and went away. But when I looked down, I saw that she had taken away the good egg and left the bad one all green and yellow in the slot basin. I rang again. You've taken the wrong egg, I said. Oh, she exclaimed. I thought the one I took down didn't smell very bad. In the due time, she returned with the good egg, and I resumed my breakfast with two eggs, but less appetite. It was all very trivial, to be sure, but so stupid that I felt annoyed. The character of that egg influenced everything I did. I wrote a bad article and tore it up. I got a bad headache. I used bad words to myself. Everything was so bad, so I chucked work and went for a long walk. I dined at a cheap chop house on my way back and reached home about nine o'clock. Rain was just beginning to fall as I came in, and the wind was rising. It promised an ugly night. The alley looked dismal and dreary, and the hall of the house as I passed through it felt chilly as a tomb. It was the first stormy night I'd experienced in my new quarters. The draughts were awful. They came crisscross, met in the middle of the room, formed eddies and whirlpools and cold, silent currents that almost lifted the hair off my head. I stuffed up the sashes of the windows with neckties and old socks and sat over the smoky fire to keep warm. First I tried to write, but found it too cold. My hand turned to ice on the paper. What tricks the wind play with an old place? It came rushing up the forsaken alley with a sound like the feet of a hurrying crowd of people who stopped suddenly at the door. I felt as if a lot of curious folk had arranged themselves just outside and were staring up at my windows. Then they took to their heels again and fled, whispering and laughing down the lane, only, however, to return with the next gust of wind and repeat their impertinence. On the other side of my room, a single square window opens into a sort of shaft or well that measures about six feet across to the back of another house. Down this funnel, the wind dropped and puffed and shouted, noises I had, I had never heard before. Between these two entertainments, I sat over the fire in a greatcoat, listening to the deep booming in the chimney. It was like being in a ship at sea, and I almost looked for the floor to rise in undulations and rock to and fro. October 12th. I wish I were not quite so lonely and so poor. And yet, I love both my loneliness and my poverty. The former makes me appreciate the companionship of the wind and the rain, while the latter preserves my liver and prevents me wasting time in dancing attendance upon women. Poor, ill-dressed men are not acceptable attendants. My parents are dead, and my only sister is, no, not dead exactly, but married to a very rich man. They travel most of the time, he to find his health, she to lose herself. Through sheer neglect on her part, she has long passed out of my life. 
The door closed when, after an absolute silence of five years, she sent me a check for fifty pounds at Christmas. It was signed by her husband. I returned it to her in a thousand pieces in an unstamped envelope. So at least I had the satisfaction of knowing that it cost her something. She wrote back with a broad quill pen that covered a whole page with three lines. You are evidently as cracked as ever and rude and ungrateful into the bargain. It had always been my special terror lest the insanity in my father's family should leap across the generations and appear in me. This thought haunted me, and she knew it. So after this little exchange of civilities, the door slammed, never to open again. I heard the crash it made, and with it the falling from the walls of my heart of any little bits of china with their own peculiar value. Rare china, some of it, that only needed dusting. The same walls, too, carried mirrors in which I used to sometimes see reflected the misty lawns of childhood, the daisy chains, the wind-torn blossoms scattered through the orchard by warm rains, the robber's cave and long walks, and the hidden store of apples in the hayloft. She was my inseparable companion then, but vanished forever. Now I am quite alone. At forty-one, cannot begin all over again to build careful friendships, and all others are comparatively worthless. October 14th. My bedroom is ten by ten. It is below the level of the front room, and a step leads down into it. Both rooms are very quiet on calm nights, for there is no traffic down this forsaken alleyway. In spite of the occasional larks of the wind, it is the most sheltered strip. In its upper end, below my windows, all the cats of the neighborhood congregate as soon as darkness gathers. They lie undisturbed on the long edge of a blind window of the opposite building. For after the postman is gone, and gone at nine-thirty, no footsteps ever dare to interrupt their sinister conclave. No step but my own, or sometimes the unsteady footfall of the sun, who is something of an omnibus. October Fifteenth, I dined at the ABC shop on poached eggs and coffee, and then went for a stroll round the outer edge of Regent's Park. It was ten o'clock when I got home. I counted no less than thirteen cats, all of a dark color, crouching under the lee side of the alley walls. It was a cold night, and the stars shone like points of ice in a blue-black sky. The cats turned their heads and stared at me in silence as I passed. An odd sensation of shyness took possession of me under the glare of so many pairs of unblinking eyes. As I fumbled with the latch key, they jumped noiselessly down and pressed against my legs, as if anxious to be let in. But I slammed the door in their faces and ran quickly upstairs. The front room, as I entered to grope for the matches, felt as cold as a stone vault. The air held an unusual dampness. October seventeenth. For several days, I have been working on a ponderous article that allows no play for the fancy. My imagination requires a judicious rein. I am afraid to let it loose, for it carries me sometimes into appalling places beyond the stars, beneath the world. No one realizes the danger more than I do. But what a foolish thing to write here, for there is no one to know. No one to realize. My mind of late has held unusual thoughts, thoughts I have never had before about medicines and drugs and the treatment of strange illnesses. I cannot imagine their source, 
At no time in my life have I dwelt upon such ideas as now constantly throng my brain. I've had no exercise lately, for the weather has been shocking, and all my afternoons have been spent in the reading room of the British Museum, where I have a reader's ticket. I've made an unpleasant discovery. There are rats in the house. At night from my bed I have heard them scampering across the hills and valleys of the front room, and my sleep has been a good deal disturbed in consequence. October 24th Last night the son who is something of an omnibus came in. He had evidently been drinking, for I heard a loud and angry voice below in the kitchen long after I had gone to bed. Once, too, I caught the singular words rising up to me through the floor. "'Burning from top to bottom is the only thing that'll ever make this house right!' I knocked on the floor, and the voices ceased suddenly, though later I again heard their clamor in my dreams. These rooms are very quiet, almost too quiet sometimes. On windless nights they are silent as the grave, and the house might be miles in the country.' The roar of London's traffic reaches me only in heavy, distant vibrations. It holds an ominous note sometimes, like that of an approaching army, or an immense tidal wave very far away thundering in the night. October 27th. Mrs. Monson, although admirably silent, is a foolish, fussy woman. She does such stupid things. In dusting the room, she puts all my things in the wrong places. The ashtrays, which should be on the writing table, she sets in a silly row on the mantelpiece. The pen tray, which should be beside the inkstand, she hides away cleverly among the books on my reading table. My gloves she arranges daily in an idiotic array upon a half-filled bookshelf, and I always have to rearrange them on the low table by the door. She places my armchair at impossible angles between the fire and the light and the tablecloth. The one with the Trinity Hall stains. She's always puts on the table in such a fashion that when I look at it, I feel as if my tie and all my clothes are all crooked and awry. She exasperates me. Her very silence and meekness are irritating. Sometimes I feel inclined to throw the inkstand at her just to bring an expression into her watery eyes and a squeak from those colorless lips. Dear me! What a violent expression I am making use of! How very foolish of me! And yet it almost seems as if the words were not my own, but have been spoken into my ear. I mean, I never make use of such terms naturally. October 30th. I have been here a month. The place does not agree with me, I think. My headaches are more frequent and violent, and my nerves are a perpetual source of discomfort and annoyance. I have conceived a great dislike for Miss Monson, a feeling I am certain she reciprocates. Somehow, the impression comes frequently to me that there are goings-on in this house which I know nothing, and which she is very careful to hide from me. Last night, her son slept in the house, and this morning, as I was standing at the window, I saw him go out. He glanced up and caught my eye. It was a loutish figure and a singularly repulsive face that I saw, and he gave me the benefit of a fair, unpleasant leer. At least, so I imagined. November 2nd. The utter stillness of this house is beginning to oppress me. I wish there were other fellows living upstairs. 
no footsteps ever sound overhead, and no tread ever passes by my door to go up the flight. I'm beginning to feel some curiosity to go up myself and see what the upper rooms are like. I feel lonely here and isolated, swept into a deserted corner of the world and forgotten. Once I actually caught myself gazing into the long cracked mirrors, trying to see the sunlight dancing beneath the trees in the orchard. But only deep shadows seemed to congregate there now, and I soon desisted. It has been very dark all day and no wind stirring. The fogs have begun. I had to use a reading lamp all this morning. There was no cart to be heard all day. I actually missed it. This morning, in the gloom and the silence, I think I would have almost welcomed it. After all, the sound is a very human one, and this empty house at the end of the alley holds other noises that are not quite so satisfactory. I've never once seen a policeman in the lane, and the postman always hurries out with no evidence of a desire to loiter. 10 p.m. as I write this, I hear no sound but the deep murmur of the distant traffic and the low sighing of the wind. The two sounds melt into one. Now and again, a cat raises its shrill, uncanny cry upon the darkness. The cats are always there under my windows when the darkness falls. The wind is dropping into the funnel with a noise like the sudden sweeping of immense distant wings. It is a dreary night. I feel lost and forgotten. November 3rd. From my windows, I can see arrivals. When anyone comes to the door, I can just see the hat and shoulders and the hand on the bell. Only two fellows have been to see me since I came here. Both of them I saw from the window before they came up, and I heard their voices asking if I was in. Neither of them ever came back. I have finished the ponderous article. On reading it through, however, I was dissatisfied with it and drew my pencil through almost every page. There were strange expressions and ideas in it that I could not explain and viewed with amazement, not to say alarm. They did not sound like, like my very own, and I could not remember having written them. Can it be that my memory is being affected? My pens are never to be found. That stupid old woman puts them in a different place each day. I must give her due credit for finding so many hiding places. Such ingenuity is wonderful. I have told her repeatedly, but she always says, I'll speak to Emily, sir. Emily always says, I'll tell Miss Munson, sir. Their foolishness makes me irritable and scatters all my thoughts. I should like to stick the lost pins into them and turn them out blind-eyed to be scratched and mauled by those thousand hungry cats. Ooh, what a ghastly thought. Where in the world did that come from? Such an idea is no more my own than it is the policeman's. Yet I felt I had to write it. It was like a voice singing in my head, and my pen wouldn't stop till the last word was finished. What ridiculous nonsense. I must and will restrain myself. I must take more regular exercise. My nerves and liver plague me horribly. November 4th. I attended a curious lecture in the French Quarter on death. But the room was so hot and I was so weary that I fell asleep. The only part I heard, however, touched my imagination vividly. 
Speaking of suicides, the lecturer said that the self-murder was no escape from the miseries of the present, but only a preparation for greater sorrow for the future. Suicides, he declared, cannot shirk their responsibilities so easily. They must return to take up life exactly where they laid it so violently down, but with the added pain and a punishment from their weakness. Many of them wander the earth in unspeakable misery till they can reclothe themselves in the body of someone else, generally a, a lunatic or a weak-minded person, who cannot resist the hideous obsession. This is their only means of escape. Surely a weird and horrible idea. I wish I had slept all the time and not heard it at all. My mind is morbid enough without such ghastly fancies. Such mischievous propaganda should be stopped by the police. I'll write to the Times and suggest it. Good idea. I walked home through Greek Street, Soho, and imagined that a hundred years slipped back into place, and De Quincey was still there, haunting the night with invocations to his just, subtle, and mighty drug. His vast dreams seemed to hover not very far away. Once started in my brain, the pictures refused to go away, and I saw him sleeping in that cold, tenantless mansion with a strange little waif who was afraid of its ghosts, both together in the shadows under a single horseman's cloak, or wandering in the companionship of the spectral Anne, or later still on his way to the eternal rendezvous she never was able to keep. What an utterable gloom! What an untold story of horror and sorrow and suffering comes over me as I try to realize something of what that man, boy he then was, must have taken in his lonely heart. As I came up the alley, I saw a light in the top window, and a head and shoulders thrown in exaggerated upon the blind. I wondered what the sun could be doing in there at such an hour. November 5th. This morning, while writing... Someone came up the creaking stairs and knocked cautiously at my door. Thinking it was the landlady, I said, Come in! The knock was repeated, and I cried louder, Come in! Come in! But no one turned the handle. And I continued my writing with a vexed, Well, then stay out then, under my breath. Went on writing. I tried to. But my thoughts had suddenly dried up at their source. I could not set down a single word. It was a dark yellow fog morning, and there was little enough inspiration in the air as it was, but that stupid woman, standing just outside my door, waiting to be told again to come in, roused a spirit of vexation that filled my head to the exclusion of all else. At last I jumped up, and I opened the door myself. "'What do you want, and why in the world don't you come in?' I cried out. But the words dropped into empty air. There was no one there. The fog poured up the dingy staircase in deep yellow coils, and there was no sign of a human being anywhere. I slammed the door with imprecations upon the house and its noises and went back to work. A few minutes later, Emily came in with a letter. Were you or Miss Monson outside a few minutes ago knocking at my door? No, sir. Are you sure? Miss Monson's gone to market, and there's no one but me and the child in the old house, and I've been doing dishes for the last hour, sir. I fancied the girl's face turned a shade paler. She fidgeted toward the door with a glance over her shoulder. Wait, Emily, 
I said, and then told her what I had heard. She stared stupidly at me, though her eyes shifted now and then over the articles in the room. Who was it? I asked when I had come to the end. Miss Monson says it's only mice, she said, as repeating a learned lesson. Mice? I exclaimed. It's nothing of the sort. Someone was feeling about outside my door. Who was it? Is the son in the house? Her whole manner changed suddenly, and she became earnest instead of evasive. She seemed anxious to tell the truth. Oh, no, sir. There's no one in the house at all but you and me and the child, and there couldn't have been anybody at your door, sir. As for them knocks. She stopped abruptly, as though she had said too much. Well, what about the knocks? I said more gently. Of course, she stammered. The knocks isn't mice, nor the, the footsteps neither, but then again she came to a full halt. Anything wrong with the house? No, no, sir. The drains are splendid. I didn't mean the drains, girl. I mean, did anything. anything bad ever happen here? She flushed up to the roots of her hair and then turned suddenly pale again. She was obviously in considerable distress, and there was something she was anxious yet afraid to tell, some forbidden thing she was not allowed to mention. I don't mind what it is, only I should like to know, I said encouragingly. Raising her frightened eyes to my face, she began to blurt something out. That which once happened to a gentleman that lived upstairs, when a shrill voice calling her name sounded below. Emily! Emily! It was the returning landlady, and the girl tumbled downstairs as if pulled backward by a rope, leaving me full of conjectures as to what in the world could have happened to a gentleman upstairs that could in so curious a manner affect my ears downstairs. November 10th. I have done capital work, have finished the ponderance article, and had it accepted for the review, and another one ordered. I feel well and cheerful, and have had regular exercise and good sleep. No headaches, no nerves, no liver. The pills the chemist recommended are wonderful. Even the gray-faced landlady rouses pity in me. I'm sorry for her, so worn, so weary, so oddly put together, just like the building. She looks as if she had once suffered some shock of terror and was momentarily dreading another. When I spoke to her today very gently about not putting the pins in the ashtray and the gloves on the bookshelf, she raised her faint eyes to mine for the first time and said with a ghost of a smile, I'll try to remember, sir. I felt inclined to pat her on the back and say, Come, cheer up and be jolly. Life's not so bad after all. Oh, I am much better. There's nothing like open air and success and good sleep. They build up as if by magic the portions of the heart eaten down by despair and unsatisfied yearnings. Even to the cats I feel friendly. When I came in at eleven o'clock tonight, they followed me to the door in a stream, and I stooped down to stroke the one nearest to me. Bah! The brute hissed and spat and struck at me with her paws. The claw caught my hand and drew blood in a thin line. The others danced sideways into the darkness, screeching as though I had done them an injury. I believe these cats really hate me. 
Perhaps they are only waiting to be reinforced. Then they will attack me. Ha <laughs> ha! In spite of the momentary annoyance, this fancy set me laughing upstairs into my room. The fire was out, and the room seemed unusually cold. As I groped my way over to the mantelpiece to find the matches, I realized all at once that there was another person standing beside me in the darkness. I could, of course, see nothing but my fingers. Feeling along the ledge came into forcible contact with something that was at once withdrawn. It was cold and moist. I could have, I could have sworn it was somebody's hand. My flesh began to creep instantly. Who's that? I exclaimed in a loud voice. My voice dropped into the silence like a pebble into a deep well. There was no answer. But at the same moment, I heard something moving away from me across the room in the direction of the door. It was a sort of confused footstep and the sound of garments brushing the furniture on the way out. The same second my hand stumbled upon the matchbox and I struck a light. I expected to see Miss Monson or Emily or perhaps the son who is something of an omnibus. But the flare of the gas jet loomed an empty room. There was not a sign of a person anywhere. I felt the hair stir on my head and instinctively I backed up against the wall lest something should approach me from behind. I was distinctly alarmed. But the next minute I recovered myself. The door was open to the landing and I crossed the room. Not without some inward trepidation and went out. The light from the room fell upon the stairs, but there was no one to be seen anywhere. Nor was there any sound on the creaking wooden staircase to indicate a departing creature. I was in the act of turning to go in again when a sound overhead caught my ear. It was a very faint sound, not unlike the sigh of wind, yet it could not have been wind, for the night was still as the grave. Though it was not repeated, I resolved to go upstairs and see for myself what it all meant. Two senses had been affected, touch and hearing, and I could not believe that I had been deceived. So with a lighted candle, I went stealthily forth on my unpleasant journey into the upper regions of this queer little house. On the first landing, there was only one door, and it was locked. On the second, there was also only one door, but when I turned the handle, it opened. There came forth to meet me the chill, musty air that is characteristic of a long, unoccupied room. With it there came an indecipherable odor. I use that adjective advisedly. Though very faint, diluted as it were, it was nevertheless an odor that made my gorge rise. I had never smelt anything like it before. I cannot describe it. The room was small and square, close under the roof with a sloping ceiling and two tiny windows. It was cold as a grave without a shred of carpet or a stick of furniture. The icy atmosphere and the nameless odor combined to make the room abominable to me, and after lingering a moment to see that it contained no cupboards or corners into which a person might have crept for concealment, I made haste to shut the door and went downstairs again to bed. Evidently, I had been deceived, after all, as to the noise. In the night, I had a very foolish but very vivid dream. I dreamed that the landlady and another person, dark and not properly visible, entered my room on all fours, followed by a horde of immense cats. 
They attacked me as I lay in bed and murdered me, then dragged my body upstairs and deposited it on the floor of that cold little square room under the roof. November 11th. Since my talk with Emily, the unfinished talk, I have hardly once set eyes on her. Miss Monson now attends wholly to my wants. As usual, she does everything exactly as I don't like it done. It is all too utterly trivial to mention, but it is exceedingly irritating. Like small doses of morphine often repeated, she has finally had an accumulative effect. November 12th. This morning I woke up early and came into the front room to get a book, meaning to read in bed till it was time to get up. Emily was laying the fire. "'Good morning,' I said cheerfully. "'Mind you make a good fire. It's very cold.' The girl turned and showed me a startled face. It was not Emily at all. "'Where's Emily?' I exclaimed. "'You mean the girl who was here before me?' "'Has Emily left?' "'I came on the sixth,' she replied. "'And she'd gone then.' I got my book and went back to bed. Emily must have been sent away almost immediately after our conversation. This reflection kept coming between me and the printed page. I was glad when it was time to get up. Such prompt energy, such merciless decision seemed to argue something of importance to somebody. November 13th. The wound inflicted by the cat's claw has swollen and causes me annoyance and some pain. It throbs and itches. I'm afraid my blood must be in poor condition, or it would have healed by now. I opened it with a penknife, soaked in an antiseptic solution, and cleaned it thoroughly. I have heard unpleasant stories of the results of wounds inflicted by cats. November 14th. In spite of the curious effect this house certainly exercises upon my nerves, I like it. It is lonely and deserted in the very heart of London, but it is also for that reason quiet to work in. I wonder why it is so cheap. Some people might be suspicious, but I did not even ask the reason. No answer is better than a lie. If only I could remove the cats from the outside and the rats from the inside. I feel that I shall grow accustomed more and more to its peculiarities, and shall die here. Ah, That expression reads queerly and gives a wrong impression. I meant live and die here. I shall renew the lease from year to year till one of us crumbles to pieces. From present indications, the building will go first. November 16th. This morning I woke up to find my clothes scattered about the room and a cane chair overturned beside the bed. My coat and waistcoat looked as if they had been tried on by someone in the night. I had horrible vivid dreams, too, in which someone covering his face with his hands kept coming close to me and crying out as if in pain. Where can I find covering? Who will clothe me? How silly, and yet it frightened me a little. It was so dreadfully real. It is now over a year since I last walked in my sleep and woke up with such a shock on the cold pavement of Earl Court's Road where I then lived. I thought I was cured, but evidently not. This discovery has me rather disquieted. Tonight I shall resort to the old trick of tying my toe to the bedpost. November 17th. 
Last night, I was again troubled by most oppressive dreams. Someone seemed to be moving in the night up and down my room, sometimes passing into the front room and then returning to stand beside the bed and stare intently down upon me. I was being watched by this person all night long. I never actually woke, though I was often very near to it. I suppose it was a nightmare from indigestion, for this morning I have one of my old vile headaches. Yet all my clothes lay about the floor when I woke, where they had evidently been flung. Had I tossed them? During the dark hours, my trousers trailed over the steps into the front room. Worse than this, though, I fancied I noticed about the room in the morning that strange, fetid odor. Though very faint, its mere suggestion is foul and nauseating. What in the world can it be? I wonder. In the future, should I lock the door? November 26th. I have accomplished a lot of good work during this past week. Also, managed to get regular exercise. I have felt well and in an equitable state of mind. Only two things have occurred to disturb my equanimity. The first is trivial in it of itself, no doubt to be easily explained. The upper window where I saw the light on November 4th with the shadow of a large head and shoulders upon the blind is one of the windows in the square room under the roof. In reality, it has no blind at all. Here is the other thing. I was coming home late last night in a fresh fall of snow about eleven o'clock, my umbrella low down over my head. Halfway up the alley where the snow was wholly untrodden, I saw a man's legs in front of me. The umbrella hid the rest of his figure, but on raising it I saw that he was tall and broad and was walking as I was towards the door of my house. He could not have been four feet ahead of me. I had thought the alley was empty when I entered it. might of course been mistaken very easily. A sudden gust of wind compelled me to lower the umbrella, and when I raised it again, not a half a minute later, there was no longer any man to be seen. With a few more steps, I reached the door. It was closed as usual. I then noticed with a sudden cessation of dismay that the surface of the freshly fallen snow was unbroken. My own footmarks were the only ones to be seen anywhere, and though I retraced my way to the point where I had first seen the man, I could find no slight impression of any other boots. Feeling creepy and uncomfortable, I went upstairs and was glad to get into bed. November 28th. With the fastening of my bedroom door, the disturbances ceased. I am convinced that I walked in my sleep. Probably I untied my toe and then tied it up again. The fancied security of the locked door would alone have been enough to restore my sleep to my troubled spirit and enabled me to rest quietly. Last night, however, the annoyance was suddenly renewed in another and more aggressive form. I woke in the darkness with the impression that someone was standing outside my bedroom door, listening. As I became more awake, the impression grew into positive knowledge. that there was no appreciable sound of moving or breathing, I was so convinced of a listener that I crept out of bed and approached the door. As I did so, there came faintly from the next room the unmistakable sound of someone retreating stealthily across the floor. Yet as I heard it, 
It was neither the tread of a man nor regular footstep, but rather, it seemed to me a, a confused sort of crawling, almost as if someone on hands and knees. I unlocked the door in less than a second and passed quickly into the front room, and I could feel, as if by the subtlest imaginable variations upon my nerves, that the spot I was standing in had just that instant been vacated. The listener had moved. He was now behind the door, standing in the passage, yet this door was also closed. I moved swiftly and silently as possible across the floor and turned the handle. A cold rush of air met me from the passage and sent shivers after shivers down my back. There was no one in the doorway. There was no one on the little landing. There was no one moving down the staircase. Yet I had been so quick that this midnight listener could not be very far away, and I felt that if I persevered I should eventually come face to face with him. And the courage that came so opportunely to overcome my nervousness and horror seemed born of the unwilling conviction that it was somehow necessary for my safety, as well as my sanity, that I should find this intruder and force his secret from him. For it was not the intent action of his mind upon my own, in concentrated listening, that awakened me with such a vivid realization of his presence. Advancing across the narrow landing, I peered down into the little well of the little house. There was nothing to be seen. No one was moving in the darkness. How cold the oilcloth was to my bare feet. I cannot say what it was that suddenly drew my eyes upward. I only know that, without apparent reason, I looked up and saw a person about halfway up the next turn of the stairs. "'leaning forward over the balustrade "'and staring straight into my face. "'It was a man. "'He appeared to be clinging to the rail "'rather than standing on the stairs. "'The gloom made it impossible "'to see much beyond the general outline, "'but the head and shoulders, "'very seemingly enormous, "'and stood sharply silhouetted "'against the skylight in the roof immediately above. "'The idea flashed into my brain.' in a moment that I was looking into the visage of something monstrous. The huge skull, the mane-like hair, the wide, humped shoulders suggested, in a way I did not pause to analyze, that which was scarcely human. And for some seconds, fascinated by horror, I returned the gaze and stared into the dark, inscrutable countenance above me, without knowing exactly where I was or what I was doing. When I realized, in quite a new way, that I was face to face with the secret midnight listener, I steeled myself as best I could for what was about to come. The source of the rash courage that came to me at this awful moment will ever be to me an inexplicable mystery. Though shivering with fear, and my forehead wet with unholy dew, I resolved to advance. Twenty questions leapt to my lips. What are you? What do you want? Why do you listen and watch? Why do you come into my room? But none of them found an articulate utterance. I began forthwith to climb the stairs, and with the first signs of my advance, he drew himself back into the shadows and began to move too. He retreated as swiftly as I advanced. I heard the sound of his crawling motion a few steps ahead of me. 
ever maintaining the same distance. When I reached the landing, he was halfway up the next flight. And when I was halfway up the next flight, he'd already arrived at the top landing. And when I heard him open the door of the little square room under the roof and go in, immediately, though the door did not close after him, the sound of his moving entirely ceased. At this moment, I longed for a light or a stick or any weapon whatsoever. But I had none of those things, and it was impossible to go back. So I marched steadily up the rest of the stairs, and in less than a minute found myself standing in the gloom, face to face with the door through which the creature had just entered. For a moment I hesitated. The door was about halfway open, and the listener was standing evidently in his favorite attitude just behind it, listening. To search through the dark room for him seemed hopeless. To enter the same small space where he seemed horrible. The very idea filled me with loathing, and I almost decided to turn back. It is strange at such times how trivial things impinge on the consciousness with a shock of something important and immense. Something, it might have been a beetle or a mouse, scuttled over the bare boards behind me. The door moved a quarter of an inch, closing. My decision came back with a sudden rush, as it were, and thrusting one foot, I kicked the door so that it swung sharply back to its full extent and permitted me to walk forward slowly into the aperture of profound blackness beyond. What a queer, soft sound my bare foot made on the boards. How the blood sang and buzzed in my head. I was inside. The darkness closed over me, hiding even the windows. I groped my way around the walls in a thorough search, but in order to prevent all possibility of the other's escape, I first of all closed the door. There we were, we two, shut in together between four walls within a few feet of one another. But with that, with whom? Was I thus momentarily imprisoned? A new light flashed suddenly over the affair with a swift, illuminating brilliance. And I knew I was a fool, an utter fool. I was wide awake at last, and the horror was evaporating. My cursed nerves again, a dream, a nightmare, and the old result walking in my sleep. The figure was a dream figure. Many a time before had the actors in my dreams stood before me for moments after I was awake. It was a chance match in my pajamas pocket, and I struck it on the wall. The room was utterly empty. It held not even a shadow. I went quickly down to bed, cursing my wretched nerves and my foolish, vivid dreams. But as soon as ever I was asleep again, the same uncouth figure of a man crept back to my bedside, and bending over me with his immense head close to my ear, whispered repeatedly in my dreams, I want your body. I want its covering. I'm waiting for it and listening always. Words scarcely less foolish than the dream. But I wonder what the queer odor was up in the square room. I noticed it again and stronger than ever before, and it seemed to be also in my bedroom when I woke up this morning. November 29th. 
Slowly, as moonbeams rise over misty sea in June, the thought is entering my mind that my nerves and dreams do not adequately account for the influence of the house exercises upon me. It holds me as with a fine, invisible net. I cannot escape it if I would. It draws me, and it means to keep me. November 30th. The post this morning brought me a letter from Aiden, forwarded from my old rooms in Earl's Court. It was from Chapter, my former Trinity chum, who is on his way home from the east and asked for my address. I sent it to him at the hotel he mentioned to await arrival. As I've already said, my window commands a view of the alley, and I can see an arrival without difficulty. This morning, while I was busy writing, the sound of footsteps coming up the alley filled me with a sense of vague alarm that I could in no way account for. I went over to the window and saw a man standing below for the door to be opened. His shoulders were broad, his top hat glossy, and his overcoat fitted beautifully around the collar. All this I could see, but no more. Presently the door opened, and the shock to my nerves was unmistakable when I heard a man's voice ask, "'Is he here?' mentioning my name. I could not catch the answer, but it could only have been in the affirmative, for the man entered the hall and the door shut behind him. But I waited in vain for the sound of his steps on the stairs. There was no sound of any kind. It seemed so strange that I opened my door and looked out. No one was anywhere to be seen. I walked across the narrow landing, and, looking through the window that commands the whole length of the alley, there was no sign of a human being coming or going. The lane was deserted. Then I deliberately walked downstairs to the kitchen and asked the gray-faced landlady if a gentleman had just that minute called for me. The answer given was an odd, weary sort of smiling no. December 1st. I feel genuinely alarmed and uneasy over the state of my nerves. Dreams are dreams, but never before had I dreamed dreams in broad daylight. I am looking forward very much to Chapter's arrival. He is a capital fellow, vigorous, healthy, with no nerves and even less imagination. And he has two thousand pounds a year into the bargain. Periodically, he makes me offers. The last was to travel around the world with him as a secretary, which was a delicate way of paying my expenses and giving me some pocket money. Offers, however, which I invariably decline. I prefer to keep his friendship. Women could not come between us. Money might. Therefore, I give it no opportunity. Chapter always laughed at what he called my fancies, being himself possessed only of that thin-blooded quality of imagination which is ever associated with the prosaic mind of man. Yet if taunted with this obvious lack, his wrath is deeply stirred. His psychology is that of the crass materialist, always a rather funny article. It would afford me genuine relief, nonetheless, to hear the cold judgment his mind will have to pass upon the story of this house, as I shall have to tell it. December 2nd. The strangest part of it all I have not referred to in this brief diary. Truth to tell, I have been afraid to set it down in black and white. I have kept it in the background of my thoughts, preventing it as far as possible from taking shape. In spite of my efforts, however, it has continued to grow. 
Now that I come to the face the issue squarely, it is harder to express than I imagined. Like a half-remembered melody that trips in the head but vanishes the moment you try to sing it, these thoughts form a group in the background of my mind, behind my mind, as it were, and refuse to come forward. They are crouching, ready to spring. But the actual leap never takes place. In these rooms, except when my mind is strongly concentrated on my work, I find myself dealing in thoughts and ideas that are not my own. New, strange conceptions, wholly foreign to my temperament, are forever cropping up in my head. What precisely they are is of no particular importance. The point is that they are entirely apart from the channel in which my thoughts have hitherto been accustomed to flow. Especially they come when my mind is at rest, unoccupied. When I'm dreaming over the fire or sitting with a book which fails to hold my attention, then these thoughts, which are not mine, spring into life and make me feel exceedingly uncomfortable. Sometimes they are so strong that I almost feel as if someone were in the room beside me thinking aloud. Evidently, my nerves and liver are shockingly out of order. I must work harder and take more vigorous exercise. The horrid thoughts that never come to mind when it's occupied, but they are always there, waiting, as if it were alive. What I have attempted to describe above came first upon me gradually after I had been some days in the house, and then grew steadily in strength. The other strange thing that has come only twice in these weeks, it appalls me. It is the consciousness of some deadly, loathsome disease. It comes over me like a wave of fever heat, and then passes off, leaving me cold and trembling. The air seems for a few seconds to become tainted. So penetrating and convincing is the thought of this sickness that on both occasions my brain has turned momentarily dizzy and through my mind like flames of white heat have flashed the ominous names of all the dangerous illnesses I know. I can no more explain these visitations than I can fly. Yet I know there is no dreaming about the clammy skin and palpitating heart which they always leave as witness of their brief visit. Most strongly of all was I aware of this nearness of mortal sickness when, on the night of the 28th, I went upstairs in pursuit of the listening figure. When we were shut in together in that little square room under the roof, I felt that I was face to face with the actual essence of this invisible and malignant disease. Such a feeling never entered my heart before. I pray to God it never may again. There, now I have confessed it. I have given some expression at least to the feeling that so far I have been afraid to see in my own writing. For, since I can no longer deceive myself, the experiences of that night were no more a dream than my daily breakfast is a dream, and the trivial entry in this diary by which I sought to explain away an occurrence that caused me unutterable horror was due solely to my desire not to acknowledge in words what I really felt and believed to be true. The increase that would have accrued to my horror by so doing might have been more than I could stand. December 3rd. I wish chapter would come. My effects are already marshaled, 
and I could see his cool gray eyes fixed incredulously on my face as I relate them. The knocking at my door, the well-dressed color, the light in the upper window, and the shadow upon the blind. The man who preceded me in the snow, the scattering of my clothes at night, Emily's arrested confession, the landlady's suspicious reticent, the midnight listener on the stairs, and those awful subsequent words in my sleep, and above all, the hardest to tell, the presence of the abominable sickness and the stream of thoughts and ideas that were not my own. I can see Chapter's face, and I can almost hear his deliberate words. You've been at tea again, and underfeeding, I expect, as usual. But to better see my nerve, doctor, and then come with me to the south of France. For this fellow, who knows nothing of disordered liver or high-strung nerves, goes regularly to a great nerve specialist with the periodic belief that his nervous system is beginning to decay. December 5th. Ever since the incident of the listener, I have kept a nightlight burning in my bedroom, and my sleep has been undisturbed. Last night, however, I was subjected to a far worse annoyance. I woke suddenly and saw a man in front of the dressing table regarding himself in the mirror. The door was locked as usual. I knew at once it was the listener, and the blood turned to ice in my veins. Such a wave of horror and dread swept over me that it seemed to turn me to rigid in my bed, and I could neither move nor speak. I noted, however, that the odor I so abhorred was strong in my room. The man seemed to be tall and broad. He was stooping forward over the mirror. His back was turned to me, but in the glass I saw the reflection of a huge head and face illumined fitfully by the flicker of the nightlight. The spectral gray of a very early morning stealing in the rounded edge of the curtain lent an additional horror to the picture, for it fell upon the hair that was tawny and mane-like, hanging about a face whose swollen, rugose features bore the once-seen, never-forgotten, lionine expression of, I dare not write down that awful word, but by way of Cooperative proof I saw in the faint mingling of the two lights that there were several bronze-colored blotches on the cheeks, which the man was evidently examining with great care in the glass. The lips were pale and very thick and large. One hand I could not see, but their other hand rested on the ivory back of my hairbrush. Its muscles were strangely contracted, the fingers thin to emaciation. The back of the hand closely puckered up, was like a big gray spider crouching to spring, or the claw of a great bird. The full realization that I was alone in the room with this nameless creature, almost within arm's reach of him, overcame me to such a degree that, when he suddenly turned and regarded me with small beady eyes, wholly out of proportion to the grandeur of their massive setting, I sat bolt upright in bed, uttered a loud cry, and then fell back in a dead swoon of terror upon the bed. December 6th. When I came to this morning, the first thing I noticed was that my clothes were strewn all over the floor. I find it difficult to put my thoughts together and have sudden accesses of violent trembling. I determined that I would go at once to Chapter's Hotel and find out when he is expected. I cannot refer to what happened in the night. It is too awful, and I have keep my thoughts rigorously away from it. 
I feel lightheaded and queer, couldn't eat any breakfast, and have twice vomited with blood. While dressing to go out, a hansom rattled up noisily over the cobbles, and a minute later the door opened, and to my great joy in walked the very subject of my thoughts. The sight of his strong face and quiet eyes had an immediate effect upon me, and I grew calmer again. His very handshake was a sort of tonic, but as I listened eagerly to his deep tones of his reassuring voice, and the visions of the night time paled a little, I began to realize how very hard it was going to be to tell him my wild, intangible tale. Some men radiate an animal vigor that destroys the delicate wolf of a vision and effectually prevents its reconstruction. Chapter was one of these men. We talked of incidents that had filled the interval since we last met, and he told me something of his travels. He talked, and I listened. But so full was I of the horrid thing I had to tell him that I made a poor listener. I was forever watching my opportunity to leap in and explode it all under his nose. Before very long, however, it was borne in upon me that he, too, was merely talking for time. He, too, held something of importance in the background of his mind, something too weighty to let fall till the right moment presented itself. So that during the whole of the first half hour we were both waiting for the psychological moment in which to properly release our respective bombs. And the intensity of our mind's actions set upon forces that merely sufficed to hold one another in check, and nothing more. As soon as I realized this, therefore, I resolved to yield. I renounced for the time my purpose of telling my story, and had the satisfaction that seeing his mind released from the restraints of my own, had once began to make preparations for the discharge of its momentous burden. The talk grew less and less magnetic. The interest waned. The descriptions of his travels became less alive. There were pauses between sentences. Presently, he repeated himself. His words clothed no living thoughts. The pauses grew longer. The interest dwindled altogether and went out like a candle in the wind. His voice ceased, and he looked squarely into my face with a serious and anxious eye. The psychological moment had come at last. I say, he began, then stopped short. I made an unconscious gesture of encouragement, but said no word. I dreaded the impending disclosure exceedingly. A dark shadow seemed to precede it. I say, he blurted out last, what in the world made you come to this place, to these rooms, I mean? They're cheap, for one thing, I began, and central, and they're too cheap, he interrupted. Didn't you ask what made them so cheap? It never occurred to me at the time. There was a pause in which he avoided my eyes. For God's sake, go on, man, and tell it, I cried for the spence was getting more than I could stand in my nervous condition. This is where Blount lived so long, he said quietly, and where he died, you know, in the old days, as I often used to come here and see him and do what I could to elevate his... He stuck fast again. Well, I said with a great effort, please go on faster. But... Chapter went on, turning his face to the window with a perceptible shiver. 
He finally got so terrible I simply couldn't stand it, though I always thought I could stand anything. It got on my nerves and made me dream and haunted me day and night. I stared at him and said nothing. I had never heard of Blount in my life and didn't know what he was talking about. But all the same, I was trembling and my mouth became strangely dry. This is the first time I've been back here since, he said almost in a whisper. Upon my word, it gives me the creeps. I swear, it isn't fit for a man to live in. I never saw you look so bad, old man. I've got it for a year, I jerked out with a forced laugh. Sign the lease and all. I thought it was rather a bargain. Chapter shuddered and buttoned his overcoat up to his neck. Then he spoke in a low voice, looking occasionally behind him as he thought he saw someone listening. I too could have sworn someone else was in the room with us. He did it himself, you know. No one blamed him a bit. His suffering were, were awful. For the last two years, he used to wear a veil when he went out. And even then, it was always in a closed carriage. Even the attendant who had nursed him for so long was at length obliged to leave. The extremities of both the lower limbs were gone, dropped off, and he moved about the ground on all fours with a sort of crawling motion. The odor, too, was... I was obliged to interrupt him here. I could hear no more details of that sort. My skin was moist. I felt hot and cold by turns for at last I was beginning to understand. Poor devil, Chapter went on. I used to keep my eyes closed as much as possible. He always begged to be allowed to take his veil off and asked if I minded very much. I used to stand by the open window. He never touched me, though. He rented the whole house. Nothing would induce him to leave it. Did he occupy these very rooms? No. He had the little room on the top floor, the square one just under the roof. He preferred it because it was dark. These rooms were too near the ground, and he was afraid people might see him through the windows. A crowd had been known to follow him up to the very door, and stand behind the windows in hopes of catching a glimpse of his face. But there were hospitals. He wouldn't go near one, and they didn't like to force him. You know, they say it's not contagious, so there was nothing to prevent his staying here if he wanted to. He spent all his time reading medical books and drugs and so on. His head and face were something appalling, just like a lion's. I held up my hand to arrest further description. He was a burden to the world, and he knew it. One night I supposed he realized too keenly to wish to live. He had the free use of drugs, and in the morning he was found dead on the floor. Two years ago, that was. And they said then he had still several years left to live. Then in heaven's name, I cried, unable to bear the suspense any longer. Tell me what it was he had, and be quick about it. I thought you knew, he exclaimed with genuine surprise. I, I thought you knew. He leaned forward and our eyes met. In a scarcely audible whisper, I caught the words his lips seemed almost afraid to utter. He was a leper. The end.
Thank you for listening to Marley's Ghosts with me, your ghostess, Deborah Marley. You can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at Marley's Ghosts or send me an email, Marley's Ghosts Podcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support the show, visit my Patreon where we have lots of tiers to choose from, each with their own special treats. Also, rate and review so our community of Dreadtime listeners can grow. Until next time, my darlings, sleep well.